Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John, we have been studying the Gospel of John. And since we've been studying the Gospel of John, I thought uh, that it would be appropriate for us to spend our Christmas service in John's letter. We've been in the Gospel of John for a number of months, and now we are going to go to his letter. I want to ask the question, why was Jesus born? We heard last week from Brian so well, um, so well preached, the cost of Christmas, what it cost Jesus, what it cost the Father, what it cost Mary, what it cost Joseph. And this morning we're going to look again at the reason for which Jesus was born, why he came, and that is such a deep question that can be answered so many ways. If I were to just say, why was Jesus born? You can answer that in a countless number of ways. He was born to fulfill prophecy. He was born to fulfill all of the prophecies that were given about him in the Old Testament that had to come true for God to be proven not to be a liar. He was born to fulfill prophecy. He was born to become human. He was born to become a man Because he had to die, he was born to die, and God can't die, so he had to be a man in order to be able to die. He was born to experience our every weakness. He had to be human. He had to be one of us to be our perfect substitute and to experience every single weakness that we experience. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. There are so many different ways that we could answer that question, but I want to answer it just in two ways from the letter in, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, John gives us two explicit reasons why Jesus came. So let's read these verses together. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. God, thank you for this precious passage. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you that we get to see it again, just like a diamond, just turning it around, the many facets of the glories of Christmas. 
Oh, how deep these riches are of what happened that night so long ago. So as we just spend a few minutes in your word this morning, may we be reminded again of the preciousness of Jesus. Oh God, I pray that he would become so beautiful, so lovely in our vision this morning that we would walk away magnifying his name. That we would walk away treasuring him and cherishing him more than anything this world has to offer. And do that by the power of your spirit. According to your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. John gives us two explicit reasons why Jesus came. Verse 5, the first explicit reason. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. He came in order to take away our sins. And then the second explicit statement is in verse 8, the second half of verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So he appeared to take away sin, because he is sinless and he can take away our sin. And he appeared to destroy the works of the devil, all of the works of the devil, but mainly in focus here, sin, to remove sin and the practice of sinning. Therefore, in these two verses alone, we are reminded that the people who experience the fullest meaning of Christmas, the people who understand it the fullest, are people who know and feel that there is something in them that needs to be destroyed. The reason why we celebrate Christmas and are excited about Christmas is because Jesus has come to destroy that which needs destroying in our hearts. And he came to destroy the works of the devil and to take away our sins. We need to hear this. I know this, this is n- not new information. We know that this is the reality of Christmas. But we need to hear it again. And we need to hear it slowly. We can take classes on how to speed read and just get through something very quickly. Um, my, my professors, when I was in seminary, they would give us so much reading material. And I would always ask them, if I'm going to get credit on this assignment... Do I get credit if I, do I have to read it in its entirety, word for word, or am I allowed to skim it? Because those are two very different things. And if I can skim it, I'll stick it in front of a fan and I will look intently at it. We'll turn the fan on and we'll skim through everything. But if I have to read it for everything that it's worth, I need to sit down and pay attention. John's going to tell us with the first word in chapter 3, verse 1, pay attention. My Bible says, see, a better translation would be behold, listen, stop. Read slowly, read carefully. What John is going to say is nothing new to us, but I pray that we would hear it as if it was the first time that we heard these truths. Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Behold, that's used so many places in the New Testament. Behold, the love of God, John is saying. We've heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We heard the angels say, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Behold, listen. And what's John asking us to listen to? The fact that the Father has such a great love for us. He has bestowed it upon us. We haven't earned it. He has graciously given it to us. And this love is that we would be called children of God. We have been called children of God. This is not that we were children of God. We just hadn't been named that yet. This is that we were enemies of God. We were God's enemies. And yet he lavished his grace, his mercy, and bestowed his love upon us in such a way that we would be changed from enemies to friends to children. To his very family. 
It only happens because of the love of God. And verse 2, um, he says, Beloved, those are, who are in his family, those who love him and those who are loved by him, we are now children of God. It's not yet appeared what we're going to be, but this is one thing that we know without a shadow of a doubt. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So if you know that you are a child of God, you have full assurance today that you will be with him one day in heaven. You don't have to wait to find out if you are in God's family. You can know that today. When we were in the, in the hospital, we were trying to share the gospel with our nurses. Uh, they were both Mormons. We were talking about Jehovah's Witness because uh, they asked us, is there anything that we need to know religion-wise to take care of you? And, and I asked, is that question really only um, given towards a Jehovah's Witness because of the blood transfusion issues? And um, we started getting into the gospel a little bit. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the 144,000 who are sealed, but they don't know who those 144,000 sealed for heaven are. If you've ever talked with the Jehovah's Witness at your door and you ask them if they know without a shadow of a doubt if they're going to heaven, they cannot honestly answer you yes. But John says, we don't have to wonder if we're a part of that family of God. If we're a part of the kingdom of heaven, we don't have to wonder. If we're children of God now, we have assurance that that last day we will see him just as he is. Now, we don't look like his family all the time. We definitely get into arguments. We definitely fight. There's some uh, disagreements in his family. But John says, listen to this. God has loved you with such a great love that he made you, his enemy, into his friend. He turned you into his family. And because of that, verse 3, everyone who has the hope that we have of heaven one day being like Jesus, not like him as in God, but like him as in glorified and sinless, because we have that hope in the future, we purify ourselves now, just as he is pure. We know with confidence that we are going to be like him, glorified, sinless one day. And so we start working on that now. We purify ourselves now. I love how John says that. If we have this hope, we fight against sin. It's not the other way around. It's not we fight against sin in order to have the hope that we can go to heaven. If we have the hope that we are going to heaven, we fight against sin, knowing we could never lose heaven, knowing that heaven is ours because of what Jesus has done and not because of what we have done. So verses 1 through 3, we're just going to kind of meditate over these verses. We don't have a lot of time to dive into them. But verses 1 through 3 clearly teach us that Jesus, we could say point number one, Jesus was born to purify us. He was born to purify us, and he was born to give us the ability to be pure. He purifies us himself, And then he gives us the ability to be pure, even as he is pure. Verse 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now, as I'm reading this, I ask the question, John, why did you go from sin to lawlessness? We kind of know what sin is. We kind of know what lawlessness, lawlessness is. Why did you put those two together, equate them? Why did you bring that up? Remember when we were studying the new birth in John chapter 3? We looked at a passage in Ezekiel that Jesus alluded to. You must be born of water and the Spirit. 
And he alluded to it because he was saying, you need to be born again. You need to be made new. You need to be a new creature in order to not sin. You need to be able to fight against sin. But you also need to be cleansed of your sin. Um, The new birth does not deal with the past sin. You need cleansing from the past. So born of the spirit for the future, born of the water, the cleansing water of the past. The past sin is done away with. I think John's bringing that up again here in verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. It's not enough to say, I'm going to work hard not to sin again. John's reminding us, you are a lawbreaker. You have broken the law. Because you have sinned, you are guilty. People who have broken the law are not afraid that they're dirty and that they're going to have to take a bubble bath to get cleansed. People who are lawbreakers are afraid that they're guilty and they're going to stand before a judge and be condemned because of their guilt. And so John is saying your sin and your guilt needs to be taken away. Sure, God can make you pure in the future, but he also needs to go into the past and cleanse everything that you've ever done. All sin is lawbreaking. But the good news for those of us who would admit we are lawbreakers, we are guilty and condemned under God's law, his holy, perfect law, which we've all broken. Verse 5, he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin, so he's perfect and he can be our perfect substitute on the cross, taking our guilt on the cross, doing away with our guilt on the cross. So if we would admit we are sinful law breakers, then we can have the guilt of our sin taken away. And we don't have to fear the judge anymore. Just look back up in verse 2. When Jesus comes back, we are not going to shrink back in shame and in guilt. We will see him and we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We're not going to shrink back in terror. You have ever thought about seeing God face to face, standing before him face to face? That's a terrifying thing to think about. But if you were in Christ Jesus, your lawlessness has been cleansed. You are perfectly righteous before the Father. So the judge that you used to be terrified of, you can now call Father. You can waltz into his presence and say, Daddy, just as my kids would run into our bedroom and jump up on our bed and say, it's Christmas, Daddy, wake up, wake up. And I say, it's Christmas, go back to bed. Let's sleep in. He came to take away our sins. The new birth wouldn't solve that problem. Justification alone solves that problem. If you just change for the future, if you just say, okay, this is it. This is the last day I'm ever going to sin. I'm not going to sin again. And you never sin moving forward, which is impossible, and we're going to deal with those words in a couple minutes here. If you do that, that's great for the future, but you still have something you need to, to pay for. You still have a past life of sin and law-breaking. So, what does God the Father do? Turn to chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, we were his enemies, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't love him, we hated him, but he loved us and he sent his son for us. So that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. That is what love is. And he is our propitiation, that's a big word for 
the satisfaction of, of God's wrath. God has a law, we have broken it, and we need to pay a penalty for that. Propitiation is payment of that penalty. Jesus came to pay the penalty in full for our sin and for our guilt. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's the opposite of lawlessness. He is the righteous. He is the one who has never been lawless. He has never broken the law. And yet, he became a lawbreaker on the cross for us. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21 from last week's sermon. God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. So Jesus was born to take away our sins. He was born to, to remove them. He was born to purify us, number one. And number two, he was born to declare us righteous, or the word that we use is justify us. Number one, Jesus was born to purify us. And number two, Jesus was born to justify us, to give us his perfect righteousness so that the Father, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfect life. Jesus was born to live the perfect and sinless life that you and I could never live, but we needed to live in order to get to God. And he died the death that you and I deserved. God the Father saw him as if he had lived our sinful lives. A great exchange happened at the cross. And it's only possible because of Christmas. It's only possible because Jesus was born. Born to purify, born to justify. And what John is going to say from verse 6 on is how those two go hand in hand. Purity and righteousness go together. New birth and justification go together. Cleansing and pardoning go together. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. The reason why this gets tricky, a lot of people over the years have come up to me and said, I'm afraid I'm not saved because this says that I'm never going to sin again. And that's not what it says. This is where it's helpful to be able to know the original language. The tense in the Greek is an ongoing, habitual, present progressive sinning without care to God's standard. This is the lifestyle that you and I lived before Jesus Christ saved us. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning in a rebellious, habitual way with no care whatsoever about what God thinks. By the very fact that people come up to me and show me this verse and say, I'm sinning and I don't want to and I'm afraid that I might not be in God's family because I'm struggling with this and I want to fight this and I'm so sick and tired of this sin. By that alone, it shows me, you know what? You're of the family of God because you hate sin. Now let's, let's start getting radical with it. He says, little children, verse 7, make sure no one deceives you. The one who, and he helps us here, practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin. You could put that in verse 8, the one who practices sin. You could put that back up in verse 6. No one who abides in him practices sinning. Makes it a practice. Makes it a habit of their lifestyle to keep on sinning without any care whatsoever about God's law or what God thinks. Nobody does that if they are truly in God's family. The Holy Spirit lives in you, so he's going to prick your conscience. He's going to turn you back to the truth. He's going to make life terrible. Uh, Psalm 32 tells us God's hand's going to be heavy on you until you repent. 
Hebrews chapter 12, all of God's kids are going to be disciplined. They're not going to be punished, but they're going to be disciplined to get them back walking with the Lord. So no one who is abiding in Jesus is going to keep practicing sin. But, verse 8, the one who does practice sin is of the devil, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. He just sins. He practices sin, and he doesn't care about God's law. He hates God. So what is God going to do about that? Middle of verse 8, the Son of God appeared. God's going to send his Son for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So in that manger so many years ago was a baby boy destined to be a destroyer of the works of the devil, to destroy them. This is good news. This is good news for us. This is good news for God. John Piper says it this way. The assembly line of Satan turns out millions of sins every day. He packs them into huge cargo planes. He flies them to heaven. He spreads them out before God and he laughs and he laughs and he laughs. Some people work full time on the assembly line. Others have quit their jobs there and only now and then return. Every minute of work on the assembly line makes God the laughing stock of Satan. Sin is Satan's business because he hates the light and the beauty and the purity and the glory of God. Nothing pleases him more than when creatures distrust and disobey their maker. Therefore, Christmas is good, good news for man and good news for God. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, This saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good news for us. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. First John 3, 8. That's good news for God. Christmas is good news for God because Jesus has come to lead a strike at Satan's assembly plant. He has walked right into the plant. He's called for the solidarity of the faithful, and he has begun a massive walkout. Christmas is a call to go on strike at the assembly plant of sin. No negotiations with the management, no bargaining, just single-minded, unswerving opposition to the product. Christmas solidarity aims to ground the cargo planes. It will not use force or violence, but with relentless devotion to truth, it will expose the life-destroying conditions of the devil's industry. Christmas solidarity will not give up until a complete shutdown has been achieved. He concludes by saying this, When sin has been destroyed, God's name will be wholly exonerated. No one will be laughing at him anymore. So if you want to give a gift to God this Christmas, walk off the assembly line and never go back. Take up your place in the picket line of love. Join Christmas solidarity until the majestic name of God is cleared and he stands glorious amid the accolades of the righteous. This is the aim of the incarnation. The aim of the incarnation of Jesus' birth is to get us to turn to Jesus and see him as more glorious than the sin that we used to walk in. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Believing, loving God, believing Jesus, believing in Jesus is treasuring him for everything that he is, for everything that he's done. It's saying he is better than life itself. He has given us life. But the incarnation needed to, to happen in order for this to happen. Whoever believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God, is the Messiah. You realize the second person of the Trinity wasn't Jesus. His name wasn't Jesus until he was born, right? The angel said, you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He became Jesus for us to behold him, to believe in him, and to be born of God because we cherish him more than anything in this world. Verse 10 in that chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. This is what it is. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Jesus had to be born to give us life. How do we know if we are in his family? How do we know if we're born of the Spirit, if we're cleansed by the washing of the regeneration of the water of the Word? How do we know? I would ask it this way. How do you know that you're alive this morning? If I were to ask you that question, I'd say, Brian, how do you know you're alive? Would Brian reach into his pocket, pull out his birth certificate? I know I'm alive. My birth certificate says so. No, I'm pulse, I'm walking, I'm, not, I'm, I'm alive. There's signs, and the signs point to the fact that he is alive. How do you know that you are a child of God? God has given us signs, evidence that you are alive. You don't have to look back to some specific date, to some specific moment. If you breathe in a spiritual way, then you are born again. If you have love for Jesus, then you have been born again. What's the implication for all these things? Turn back to chapter 3, verse 11. If you were to finish that out, he says this. This is the message which you've heard from the beginning. The message is this, that we should love one another. Exactly the same way that God, through Jesus, loved us, we need to love one another. Turn to chapter uh, 4, chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We must. So the implication of Jesus' love for us is that we must love others. Jesus was born to purify and to justify us, and he was born to give us a model of humility and love to give to others. Let's turn to Hebrews in conclusion. Hebrews chapter 2. Two more verses that sum up everything that happened at Christmas. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children, that's the children of flesh, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, that's being human, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is a much shorter version of everything that John has said. Start at the beginning. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, so children of God, we've been adopted through the work of Jesus as sons and daughters. We were alienated, we were hostile, we were enemies, and he has called us his friend. He himself, Jesus, partook of the same, the same things, the same flesh and blood. Jesus existed before the incarnation. He was spirit. He was the eternal word. He was with God. He was God. But in the incarnation, he came and he took on flesh and blood. He clothed his deity with humanity. He was fully man, fully God. Why? That through death, middle of verse 14, through death, Jesus became a man to die. God can't die. 
And Good Friday is the reason for Christmas. Good Friday is in view at Christmas, so Jesus had to be born to die. Through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. In dying, Jesus defanged the devil. How? By covering all of our sins. This means that Satan has no legitimate grounds to accuse you. He has no legitimate grounds to accuse you. Romans 8.33, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who has justified us, so who can condemn us? No one can accuse you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan's ultimate weapon against us is our own sin. So if Jesus takes away our sins, Satan is rendered powerless. Verse 15, he might free those through who fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We're free from the fear of death. We're free from punishment. God has justified us, and get this, Satan can never overturn that decree. There's nothing you could ever do where Satan says, that's it, I'm overturning that, and takes it to God and says, God, overturn it, and God says, yes, I'm overturning. They were my child, now they're my enemy again. It can't happen. Christmas brings no more fear of punishment. A baby in a manger brings no condemnation. Instead, it brings joy. No condemnation, but instead of that, joy. If we do not fear our last, final, greatest enemy, then we have nothing to fear at all. We have nothing to fear. And brothers and sisters, these are weird, scary days that we live in. Fearful days for many, but not for believers. Our greatest enemy has been destroyed. The Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world so we can live in hope and in joy and in freedom from fear. Why did Jesus come? Why was he born? He was born to purify us. He was born to justify us. He was born to give us a purpose in life, to fight against sin, to fight for love for Jesus. He was born to give us a hope for our failures. He has justified us. He has forgiven us. He was born to be, to, to be for us a help in the fight against sin. He's our propitiation. He's our justification. He is everything. So without Christmas, the new birth isn't possible. Faith isn't possible. Purification isn't possible. Justification isn't possible. Our final hope of glorification isn't possible. Christmas is so important. It is so important. What a glorious holiday. It is so worth celebrating. And praise the Lord, we had a chance to celebrate it a couple days ago. But let's celebrate the freedom that we have because of Christmas year-round. And this morning, let's behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's behold our sin. Let's call ourselves what God calls us, lawbreakers, guilty under his holy law, worthy of death, worthy of hell. And as we behold our sin, let's behold the magnificence of the Savior who takes away our sins. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. May we stand in awe of who you are, of what you've done because of Jesus. And now, God, I pray that our affections would be raised for Jesus as we behold him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Behold.